Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Katja Starkey, founder of the nonprofit Touch the Nations. After five years teaching sixth grade, Omaha native Katja Starkey went to 12 countries in 12 months, undertaking relief work in places struck by natural disasters, oppression, and war. Over the four years between 1999 and 2003, while working as a substitute teacher, Katja traveled part-time visiting 38 countries. Unable to forget the people she had met and the enormous needs they faced, in 2004, Katja founded Touch the Nations, in order to connect the world at home and the world abroad, which now supports four orphanages and schools, as well as sharing awareness, resources, and hope. Katya lives in Omaha with her husband and three children. Katya, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. You're a teacher, so tell me what drew you to teaching, and maybe share some of your teaching experiences, please. I love teaching. I'm not teaching right now, but I've never lost the love of teaching. I love young people. The main grade level I taught was fifth and sixth, and that's like a sweet spot for me. To be honest with you, when I was a senior in high school, they gave us a little survey and a little spin dial thing where you had to put things you were good at and things you liked, and you twist it, and out popped some options for you. And I didn't like any of the choices that matched me. And I said, well... I guess I can teach that's on the list. Everything else I didn't want to do. So that's not the greatest entry into teaching, but I've loved it. It is a huge amount of energy to teach, but it's worth it. I so valued my kids. I taught at Belvedere, which is not too far away from where we're recording right now. I really enjoyed teaching there. I made the decision. I requested to teach in North Omaha, and I wanted to make a positive impact in a struggling school. So at the time, Belvedere was second to the bottom academically in the city. And so I wanted to be in that kind of a place. I love this community. I think there's a lot of misunderstandings between races and people of different backgrounds. And I think when you make the opportunity to know one another, a lot of those barriers in your mind fall. One thing I really enjoyed Maybe after I traveled and came back to teaching, I actually got my same job back at Belvedere. So that was a thrill. After being in so many places where you're new, you don't know a soul, I got my same teaching job back. So it's people I knew, the neighborhood I knew. I was so delighted. Anyway, I decided I was going to bake a pan of brownies every Sunday night. And on Monday, I would tell the kids, I'm coming to someone's house tonight after school. Who's got parents home? Who's got somebody home? And if it was near, we would walk together and I'd deliver the brownies. And if it was a distance, I'd get permission over the phone and drive the kid home and just make a contact. And those positive initial contacts with a family paid tremendous dividends over the course of a year. And one of my most astonishing moments, one of the girls that I brought, she was toward the end of the list, so she knew she was going to be one of the next weeks. I got to her house, and her mom had made dinner. And I, my jaw fell to the ground, and she said, the kindergarten teacher came to our house, and now in the sixth grade is the next time someone from the school has come by. So you are sitting down for dinner. There's nothing, I don't care how much money you've got, there's nothing as precious as those 
relationships, you've had the opportunity to invest in someone's life when they're young and impressionable. I treasure that. I can't help but think ahead to our conversation in a little while about some of the work you've been doing since you first began teaching. But I think maybe there's a connection here between you being called in some way internally, knowing that you wanted to work with disadvantaged communities and also to work with younger children. And you use the phrase young and impressionable. And so what was it within you that was calling you or suggesting to you this this is the more purposeful course? I really wouldn't do good wiping noses and zipping and tying. That's not a place I could stay. But I like to think and to make students think. And I like when they're young enough that they haven't totally closed their brains. They still have openness. And I like to challenge them. In 1999, you went to Africa. And in 12 months, you went to uh, 12 different countries. So before you actually got on the plane, what was going through your mind? What drove you to decide this is what you were going to do? In some ways, it seems really unusual. And in some ways, it seems very natural. So I'll just tell you how it happened. The biggest factor in my life is the reality of God's love impacting me, directing me, and being a real healing agent in my life from some of the difficulties I've experienced. And that reality is the motivation for all that I do. So I heard about some people that were traveling. I heard about some first responders who were within a disaster within 48 hours of it taking place. So something just stirred in me, like I felt like there was fire inside of me. And I went up to one of my good friends. His name is Ray Mayhew. He is British and he is a pastor. He was instrumental along with his wife, Jenny, helping me connect with international people where I could serve. I actually have never signed a paper with any organization, never made any contractor agreement, but they said, we know somebody here. Like Jenny, prior to them being married, had lived in Turkey. So when the earthquakes hit in Turkey, they said, Jenny's friend is still living there. You can go and serve with her. And we did rebuilding. And they said, since you're a teacher, we want you to start a little children's club in the the relocation camp. I forget what they called it. But everybody was living in these metal containers that looked like the back of a semi-truck. They were up on cinder blocks, and it was just a safe area in a field. They said the children are so traumatized from what's taken place that we just want you to play and just do anything that makes them feel normal once again. And I'm very thankful that one friend who's been trained in this area taught me how to make a little book on trauma, and it's called My Life. So you, the cover says My Life, then you open it and it says Me Before the Crisis. We've used this in the tsunami, we've used it in the earthquake and other settings. Then you you put My Family Before the Earthquake my school before the earthquake, my home before the earthquake. And then you open it to the center, which is a two-page spread. 
and you just call it the earthquake, which is deprem. And this is the hand signal. You shake your hands side to side, meaning everything is shaking. And then you go to the next page. This is me after the earthquake, my family after the earthquake, and some people might be missing. This is my home. I'm now living in a blue metal box. This is my school, which we share with another school. We each get to go half a day. And this, in the final page, is my hope for the future. So it's trying to help them express, mostly through drawing, what they've gone through, but to bring them to a place of thinking forward into the future. So I was handed a whistle, and I was taught two words, chochuklar gel, which means children come. So I blew my whistle and walked through the camp and got a whole group of people behind me, and then I couldn't say anything. Thankfully, there were some 13, 12-year-old girls who knew some English, and so I learned some very basic words like tekrar. I hope I'm saying that right. Any Turkish people can correct me, but I believe that means copy me. So I would do arts and crafts, and I just did something, and then I said tekrar, copy me. I don't know what, how to explain that I'm making a butterfly, but do this. And we got to laugh together and enjoy simple things. And so that love for teaching and love for kids did come in useful around the world. Children, people are the same around the world in many ways. Every culture, every human being has strengths and weaknesses. But I've always wanted to look for the good. What does this offer? In Egypt, they say, enti asal, you are honey. And I just love that. I love to gather those precious things from different places. So earlier, I said you went to 12 countries in Africa. Yeah, but not all Africa. But clearly, yes. So, in the world. So just for the sake of clarity, to to give this set of experiences a, a, a structure so we can we can track with you, where did you first go to and what were the countries that you visited in this period? And then we'll talk about more of those stories. I'm going to do my best to remember that. I do know that Jerusalem was the first destination. There had been a three-year walk following the crusade routes with apologies written in many languages. And we were just, anybody could join any portion of this journey. Well, the timing in which I quit teaching at the end of the school year and then went on my journey coincided with Jerusalem being the first one. Well, it was the end of the walk. So I got in on the tail end. I just flew there individually, but then you, you meet with others from all over the place and you get training that 
in history, people came in the name of Christ, but not in the spirit of Christ. And they have created a great deal of damage in these countries. And we are simply coming to say sorry. And so we had our little folders with laminated sheets and we'd just look for people and, you know, ask God to guide you. Who should I talk to today? And just to try to minister to the hearts of people who have been damaged, even in their generations. That's a powerful, being hurt is very powerful and being healed is very powerful. And so it was a very simple activity. Uh, but that was our very first, the very first place I went. From there, I was based in London because Ray and Jenny are British and they connected me with some friends. And then I had Afghanistan was a place I went twice during the Taliban rule. Uh, I love Afghan people. I do not like being in Afghanistan personally. Uh, it wasn't my favorite place to go the first time. And I didn't want to go the second time, but Jenny said, you're coming on my team. So I went the second time because we wanted to encourage women who were oppressed. So it was worth it to go, although it was highly uncomfortable. I'm a white person. I've never experienced racism, so to speak. But the gender thing was oppressive there. And I've never felt that experience anywhere else where I said, it hurts to breathe the air. I feel guilty for being alive. It would be better for others if I weren't even on the planet. So that's a different setting uh, than anywhere else I've been on the earth. But then I would just go to places that Ray and Jenny kind of located because they knew people. And uh, I don't remember the sequence. It was all very full. But I've been in many African countries Pakistan and Afghanistan. If I had a map of the globe in front of me, I might be able to say more. Turkey wasn't first, but it was the most impacting to me personally because it was so intense. If you go to serve somewhere a few days after a disaster takes place, some of the dynamics are quite different than initially. So I was, I think there was an August, I was there through Thanksgiving. We got a turkey in Turkey. Somebody hunted one down. Anyway, I was there after one earthquake, and we were building winterized tents and so forth, but I was there during a second earthquake, which I've never before or since seen so much death in such a great quantity at one time, where you're searching and rescuing. We went. We were a couple hours from the epicenter. We went in, worked through the night. It was an unforgettable experience where international groups all come together. You all team up as if you're one, but there's complete chaos. You cannot be organized because you're just stepping right in. And there were sheets with bodies and them being taken to and fro. And you were there with people. We were holding children with runny noses, trying to wipe them and give them some cakes and cookies. When the woman gets the news that her husband is no longer, and she falls to the ground, weeping and kicking. There's nothing like that. So Turkey wasn't the first country, but it riveted me, and I, and I will not be the same. Did I 
Share a thunder Yeah, I pray I can't quite remember Just what guided me this way You mentioned the earthquake and just how devastating that was. And my understanding is that is just one of several moments when you feared for your own life. Right. And so I, I'm not inviting drama necessarily right. just to make this seem uh, for entertainment. But I think those moments speak to something really profound. So maybe share some of those um, okay. those and other stories. Okay. There have been times when I sat down and said, really, when did you feel that your life was potentially at its end? And there were six times in my travels. Two of them were in Turkey within 24 hours. The first time was we had a Canadian driver in our van who was extremely rough on the vehicle. He punctured the stick shift through the floor, and we had to get it repaired in the middle of the night, which people got up and did. They knew we were on our way to help, and the road had fallen off the cliff. There was no orange barricade. There was no cone. There was no warning because it had just taken place, and with the quality of driver that we had and the road dropping off the cliff, literally, I'm astonished that I'm alive having not just gone right off the edge. So that was the first time. I was actually with another Katya uh, who was German, and we were panicking together in the back of that van, but we did arrive where we needed to go. But then we were warned by some of the people, you need to watch every step that you take. It was pitch black, and they said, if there are live wires under these metal corrugated sheets, you're going to get fried. So be careful where you step. And then there were, you would hear these, there were aftershocks. So you would hear this kind of a crackling noise, and then another wall would fall somewhere. And there was no, I mean, that's a slight warning, but you just don't know. So the road falling off the cliff felt like one, you know, cats have nine lives. There went one of my lives. And then just that whole night doing search and rescue and bandaging people and a lot of people had glass shards in their hands because they had fallen into the glass. And then the earthquake was, I think, 36 seconds, but it was during dinner preparation time. And they all use what we use in our grills, those uh, open flames on the cooker. So many people were burnt. So we were, uh, we were ministering to the, putting ointment on and what we could do. One time that I thought my life may be gone was in Afghanistan when the Taliban pulled our road, our vehicle off the road for quite a long time, and you just don't know what might take place. The gentlemen in our vehicle were invited out for tea and cookies, but the women were left in the hot, stuffy van in the back with nothing. But the gentlemen from our team, who were international people, did bring us cookies and drinks in the back of the van. And I did get out once asking to use the facilities and was allowed. But when you're just sitting there for no reason, for an extended time, you wonder what's next. But the women, the international women who were in the vehicle, who had been there many years and knew the language, they said, you must use the proverb of the country to be heard. And so she shouted out the window, 
You know it's wrong for women to be out after dark, and you would not do this to your own women. So for your own honor, you need to let us get to our destination. And they did let us get moving on. So that was tremendous. Some of the other near-death moments were in Africa because we went to war zones on purpose. And one time we were driving into the Congo each day from Burundi and then slept in Bujumbura and went across the border each day. But we were told there's a caravan. Everybody's got walkie-talkies. And when the people... They said the people in the first vehicle are extremely brave because if they get attacked, we all turn back. And we are on a road that has a history of being attacked. So we weren't in the first vehicle, but there was a checkpoint along there. So you sit for quite a while at the checkpoint and wait for your papers to be reviewed and so forth each day. Well, we were told to drink a lot of water in that heat, and I needed the facilities again. And... So I thought, well, we're sitting here for an extended time. I'm going to use the little squatty potty, you know, just a short distance away. And a friend of mine that was traveling with me, she said, I can't believe you're so brave to get out and use the toilet. And I said, do you honestly think you're safe because you're sitting in a van? I said, I'm equally as safe as you, but I'm feeling much better than you. (laughs) Tonight they're looking for Somebody to roll They pull a list of demands For entry to some promised land I went out looking but love couldn't be found They all were dancing between heaven and hell Sent some to heaven and sent some into hell Who can be holy? Who can be holy? safety was in the hands of God, not in the hands of my circumstances. And I did know I could die on several occasions. Sierra Leone is one of the countries that our nonprofit supports. There were multiple occasions in Sierra Leone where I thought this may be it. We were part of a repentance, prayer, healing, and reconciliation gathering that had been planned for at least a year by Samuel Mnyongar, who is the leader of our work in Sierra Leone and Burundi, to, uh, excuse me, Sierra Leone and Liberia today. He's Liberian. He fled that war just in time to arrive in Sierra Leone for a new war. And then he went visiting another African country and lived through a third war. I was part of another international team that had come specifically for this event that had been organized for an extended time, but the timing of it coincided with the Rebels United Front 
having overtaken the entire country of Sierra Leone except the capital of Freetown where we were. There were people in our gathering from all the districts. It's, I think, 11 or 13 districts. They had Some of them had walked for days. And when we got together, they said the rebels are in the city and they're they're in our meeting because they would never let such a big gathering take place without infiltrating, but they don't wear a uniform, but they're in here. So they said, do you want us to cancel this and go home? And nobody, it was like a no-brainer. We're not leaving. We came for this. That, I would say, is the largest miracle I have seen in my own lifetime. I love the story that I got to be a part of living but I find it so ironic that it is an unknown story. There are certain things that make the news and there are certain things that don't. But we said, we're staying. Years later, Samuel said, we thought they were going to take you international people as hostages. We didn't know that, but we had peace. And we weren't trying to measure how practical this was. So we had already driven by all the things that had bullet holes shot through. They said, this is a church that everybody had run to last time the rebels were in the city and they torched it. So the roof is off and it's just pelleted with bullet holes. And then we were staying in a convent up on a hill somewhere. And they said, this last time the rebels came, they killed everyone in this building. So we're, we're staying there. And it's just quite a reality that harm is near or the possibility of harm. A funny story in the middle of all this seriousness, Ntunsi Baroto was my roommate. She is from Lesotho. She needs to use the bathroom. There's a theme. <laughs> she needs to use the bathroom in the night, and she's reaching along the bottom of the bed to find her way, and she grabs my foot. So I'm sound asleep, and I think, they've got me. Because the Rebels United Front, their trademark was, do you want short sleeves or long sleeves? And whatever you answered, they cut your arm off at that place. They cut off your feet or your legs. So when she grabbed my foot in the night, boy, a lot of feelings were going on. We had a big joke. Don't you dare sleep far from the bathroom. You sleep close to the bathroom. It, it, it was a good lighthearted moment in the middle of the intensity. But Johnny Paul Caromo and Fode Sanko were the two rebel leaders. I studied them when I was staying in Camden Town, London, I did the homework for our group because you need to know about the place you're going. And I wanted to vomit reading about their lives because they did such atrocities to children. They had children that torch a village, ask the children to kill their parents to make them strong. If they couldn't kill their parents, they were killed along with their parents. Those who were strong then got drugged and given guns to fight. So this is the leader, Johnny Paul Caromo and Fode Sanko. We are in this gathering, in the meeting. The people in this gathering know we could all be dead any second. And we just begin to sing and worship God wholeheartedly because we know this might be our last breath. Nobody's half-hearted. Well, in such a setting, it is easy to identify rebel soldiers because they don't blend. They are the people who look gruff and cross-armed and upset in this setting and it doesn't it doesn't blend so you could i was up on stage with the group with the international team and you can easily look across and say well i see you there i see you there i see you there 
So it was somewhat humorous because you can't hide. But we were taken backstage and we were told, Johnny Paul Caromo is here. So let that sink in. The man I studied, the man I wanted to vomit reading about his life and what he had done. And they said, he has given his life to Christ. And I thought, anyone can talk. Talk is cheap. So I listened, but I wasn't convinced. But I saw him get up on the stage, and his face was shining. I knew his face. I had studied him, and he did not look the same. And I was in awe. And he, they, they had briefed us backstage that he wants to get on the stage and ask for forgiveness and ask that we would pray for him to be a minister of peace and reconciliation in the land. And we did. I was one of the people who went up, we placed our hands on this man, and we asked God exactly what he asked us. A couple days later, the internationals flew home. I went to London. This is another horrid moment in my life. There's survivor's guilt. By the time I got on the subway, the tube in London, and I've learned to pigeonhole my experiences because nobody knows what's going on where you've been. I'm on the tube. I know you're supposed to not pay attention to anyone. Just mind your own business. And I see newspapers open with full-page, gigantic photos of bloodbath, Sierra Leone. And because Sierra Leone used to be a British colony, soldiers had been sent, and it was front-page news. And I walked down the tube looking at the back of these newspapers trying to see, is there anyone on here that I was just with? I dropped off my suitcase. I got my British pounds and I purchased each of those newspapers and I have them. That was a horrid moment in my life. But Samuel Mignongar can tell the rest of the story way better than I can because he was there and I was gone. But he tells that Johnny Paul Caromo got on the radio Violence broke out right after we left. It does not take long to fly from Sierra Leone to London. Look at a map. It is not far. Within that time frame, violence had broken out. It was mayhem. But Johnny Paul Caromo got on the radio, and it's, he said at 6 p.m. tonight, everyone in this country will get, step outside your door, and shout seven times, the name of Jesus, and then you will declare that the war is over. Samuel said you couldn't even have a gathering. You couldn't even go to the stadium because of the violence everywhere. But everyone was just to step outside their own door. Samuel said, you have never heard a sound like this. The country shook because everyone, he said, Muslims, Christians, animists, witch doctors, he said everyone was so terrified of Johnny Paul Caromo, they did what he said. And they shouted. He said it was like thunder shaking the land. What this did is it confused the army. Fodesanko still wants to fight. And Johnny Paul Caromo said, it's done. So within two weeks, the violence ended and the war was over. If you look it up, when did the war in Sierra Leone end? It'll say about two years later, because that's when the UN gathered all of the weapons, but the UN was not present. They had 
relocated during this time. There's a lot of evacuation type things that go on. The violence, ask anyone who was there. Samuel says, ask anyone who was here. Two weeks after that, the war was done. So you have these experiences which are unbelievable and, and for any life, let alone you know, just one person's. So you have these astonishing experiences. You at some point then return to Omaha, but, but you are teaching part-time and continuing to work around the world, but you are moved to create this nonprofit, Touch the Nations. I'll explain how it began. Yeah, so tell us about how it began and, and maybe explain a little bit about um, what it is that, that you've been doing. Okay. So in Burundi, which is south of Rwanda, if you draw a figure eight, Rwanda is the top circle, Burundi is the bottom circle. Most people have heard of the Rwanda genocide, but not so many have heard of Burundi. They have the same tribes and they went through the same experiences. I was in Burundi with an international team once again, and the story of meeting Suzanne is way too long. If you ask me to share it another time, I'll get there. But to cut to the chase, I met her like I've never met another human being, and she said, you know, I go out and feed the children at night. I asked my leader if I had permission to join her, and he said yes. So at the end of the day, she goes to the bakery with a huge garbage liner and just buys all that's left, and then she get in her van and drive slowly through the streets and call out, I'll meet you down at such and such a corner. I'm, I'm bringing the bread. They call her Mama Mukate, which means Mama Bread. And so I went with her, and I've seen rough young people, but this was another level where people are starving, and you get more violent when you don't know if this is your last piece of bread. We gave out two buns to every kid, but they were not being fair. They were pushing the little ones, just a fighting mentality. Uh, 
and I kept in touch with her when I got back to the United States. So I live in Omaha, but I think about the world constantly. What struck me was it looked like little packs of hot dog buns laying along the road. And then I look a little closer and I thought, no, those are people. They're people bunched together in little groups to keep warm. They're wrapped in something. And I could not shake that. When I came back, so I taught at Belvedere prior to my travels, and then I was hired again with the same age group. I was so delighted. And one of my students who I can tease, Dante, he would make fun of my shoes because I had a crack in the side of my shoe and you could see my sock. And he would say, J.C. Penny is having a 75% off sale. Please go buy some shoes. And I said, I have made a commitment that I'm going to buy an orphanage in Burundi so that little children your age and younger will not be sleeping outside by themselves and being chased by police with sticks to get rid of them. What have they done wrong? Their parents have died. They have nothing. They don't have infrastructure like we do. There's no such thing as a free lunch, a backpack sent home on the weekend with food in it, none of that. You are on your own. As a matter of fact, Suzanne, one day she said, where is so-and-so? She hadn't seen one of the kids. And they said to her, well, he died. And she said, why didn't you tell me? And the kids said, because you're good to us. We didn't want to trouble you. But don't worry. We buried him in a good grave. We sneaked into the king's land and we buried him there. And I thought, there are children burying children, not wanting to trouble an adult? This is not okay with me. So I ate ramen noodles and eggs. I didn't go to a movie for a year. I didn't buy any clothing. People, it was in the day when you had blockbuster two-day rental, and all my friends would say, I watched a movie tonight. I'm dropping it at your house. You can watch it tomorrow for free, but just return it on time. So that's how I lived for a year to purchase Buiza Home, which is the orphanage in Burundi. I didn't have a nonprofit. And then Ray Mayhew said, you need to start a 501c3. I said, I don't want to do that. It'll cost $1,000. Do you know what that money will do overseas? I don't want to waste that money. He said, you need to invest it. He said, there are many people who create a structure and try to put life in it. There is life here, and you must put a structure around it. So I did what he said, and 15 years later, I'm glad I did, because it's becoming fruitful. That investment of $1,000 has not gone to waste. So what are some of the programs, then, that it's not one orphanage, now it's four? It's four. And there are schools, too. Yes. What How is, did we get from A to B? Yeah. So what's happening now, and what have been some of the outcomes over the last 15 years? Okay. We just began with what we could do. I was individually saving my salary, a third of my salary, to purchase that first orphanage. But then you need people to come on board. You can't invite people into a house and not feed them. So we got sponsors for the first orphanage. Then I had stayed in touch with Samuel Mignongar in Sierra Leone also. And I will refrain from explaining why his prior funding disappeared. It was atrocious. But I just said, oh, my goodness, I will try to help. But I am so small. But I'm willing to advocate for you. We began just by doing simple things. Like I took two artists in 99 or maybe 2000 
to the amputee camps. We drew, they, they did charcoal sketches and I interviewed people and then we sold their face and their story and raised funds. And we asked the people, what do you want the money to be for? Every place we went, they said, education for our children. They wanted their kids to have a hope and a future. So I'm a teacher. I didn't, I didn't do that because I was a teacher, but I, that resonated with me. And clearly it's the same around the world. You want your kids to do well. So we began to just provide scholarships to existing schools whenever we were able to sell some of these pictures. Over time, we have built two schools, one of which has been destroyed through a flood, but the kids are learning under a mango tree with a chalkboard. I, anytime I was teaching here in the U.S. and I heard a complaint, I had a few things to mention. You have got it all. You have got it made. Do not complain. One of our schools, they started school before the roof was on because they wanted to learn. And they have two rainy seasons, but they just put a tarp on top. They wanted to learn, and that's what mattered, not the facility. Anyway, I'm going to get off my soapbox. Um, so we just got behind. A big value of mine is to get behind a national leader who is doing outstanding things and advocate for them. I feel like God spoke to my heart about Suzanne. Be the wind in her sails and make her visions come true. We do not come in as the outsider and recommend things. We try to listen, which is why we sent a container in 2010 so that every amputee, 10,000 amputees in Sierra Leone, civilians, not soldiers, who were amputated during the war, they said, I heard, I just listened to Samuel one day. He was at my house. He travels to the States sometimes. He said, the amputees feel that their perpetrators were given gifts. They turned in their weapon. They received a soccer ball, a pair of shoes, and maybe an outfit. Might not seem like much on our side of the planet, but that, he said, people joined the fight in order to get a weapon, in order to turn it in, in order to get the ball. We don't comprehend that. So I said, let's give compensation to all the amputees. So for a year, we gathered simple items, purses, shoes, backpacks, whatever, so that everybody, Samuel and his team, went throughout the country to all the amputee camps and said, your perpetrators received something. You're receiving something today. And that is how our original orphanage in Sierra Leone began, because they went to Murraytown Amputee Camp, which no longer exists. They disbanded it. But they said a lot of these amputees die from their wounds because it wasn't surgical. They haven't connected their veins back together. They're dying in great pain from blood clots. Now all these children are here without parents. What are we going to do? Again, responding to the need we heard. So we built the first orphanage, which got completely destroyed. It didn't get wiped away in the flood, but the government said this area is uninhabitable. So they're not able to be there right now. And with all the flooding going on in our own region, it strikes a chord in me. I so appreciate everything that I hear going on. It seems like everywhere I turn, the community of Omaha is reaching out to those in Iowa and Nebraska to, to do something to help. And it means a great deal because this is something that's become part of my DNA. If somebody's suffering, jump in. Even if you can't contribute, I just wanted to get to my bed, change, who's the wheel? 
Here's another story. I felt guilty in Sierra Leone. We we are looking at all these people with their missing limbs. And we, we bought them a fishing net and a fishing boat. Wow. That was almost embarrassing. I thought, why have I come? I've spent money on an airline ticket. I could have sent the money. But one of the leaders in that same Murraytown camp, he looked at the stump of his arm near his shoulder and he pointed at that. And he said, this was on my first trip, he said, this is not our greatest pain. Our greatest pain is that we feel forgotten by the world. And by coming, you help to heal that pain. I was moved because I thought, what could be worse than that your arm got hacked off? But that it's like dismissed. It's not a, it's not an international concern. So nobody's coming to your aid. They actually would not let National Geographic come into their camps. They didn't want to be didn't want spectators coming, but they understood why we had come. And these men stood up with their, their hacked off arms and they said, take our picture, tell the world. And all I wanted to say was, the world is not listening to me. That comment makes me think then, in what ways are you pessimistic about, and in what ways are you optimistic about our sense of global community? Hmm. There's a phrase that I know that's that you can have a heart of stone or a heart of flesh. I'm working toward keeping my heart soft. So I don't even really want to talk about how we're not quite where we need to be, but I want to be I love the quote be the change you want to see in the world from Gandhi. And so that's my intention. And people have asked me, why don't you live in Africa? You love it so much. And I felt like God spoke to my heart, kind of stir the pot. Come home and stir the pot. So I want to be here letting people not forget there's a world beyond our edges. There's a much bigger world. And we have the privilege to impact it. When I've been in all these different countries, people live off so little. I got my watch repaired in Egypt for four cents. My Syrian friend said, you look Syrian, don't say a word. The, the price will go up if you speak. I'll speak for you. I realized we have the privilege to earn. So when I was saving a third of my teaching salary, was I uncomfortable for one year? Slightly. Did I suffer? No. But I was able to buy a building for children who had not a thing. So to me, I like to stir people up to say, you have more power in your hand than you realize. Do something. 
contribute of yourself, make this world a better place. Because we have more possibility for good than we realize. And that's what I like to stir people up with. And maybe kids are more open to that because I spend a lot of my time with kids. But if adults are open to hear that, I'd love for that message to go out. Have you ever faced criticism that your focus is, what's the expression, charity begins at home? Have have you ever been criticized for that? I'm biting my tongue right now. There are many things that I could flippantly say, which I'm going to refrain. Um, I think I usually can say, I have invested my life in children near and far. So no one can argue that I'm forgetting about home. But I try to, I'll say something that Samuel Mignongar has mentioned. He said, Africa's children would love to be America's poor. We don't see anybody dead on the road because they were thirsty or dead on the road. There's, there's Burundian refugees living in our town. And when you get them to share their stories of what they've seen and lived, we have no concept. So there, every life matters. Every human matters. But we have no concept of the suffering that goes on in the earth. So if people ask me these things, they're maybe going to get more than they bargained for with my answer. But I try to keep it positive, but maybe shed some light on the realities. Live's radio show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. I've been in conversation today with Katja Starkey, founder of the nonprofit Touch the Nations. Katja, it's a remarkable story, and I'm sure it's going to be continuing to be remarkable. So thank you for sharing that it's with us. It's a pleasure being here. Thank you for your time. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.